0: Following screenings at the Cannes Film Festival and Toronto International Film Festival, the supernatural thriller Ashcal, the Tunisian investigation, is now available on digital platforms. Ashcal follows the discovery of a mysterious burnt body by two police officers, which sparks a puzzling repetition of events. As the investigation progresses and more burnt bodies start showing up, I hate it when that happens. A network of violence and corruption is uncovered throughout the city. Hailed by Screen Anarchy as, quote, a deft combination of neo-noir and the fantastic, Ashkal marks an important evolution in Tunisian genre cinema and is now available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, and Vudu.
1: Very well done, Scott. And I have to tell you about Fangoria before we can kick things off. Fangoria has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever. This gorgeous magazine is highly collectible, of course, and is delivered right to your front door four times a year, each issue filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past, present, and future with all the most exciting Journalists, filmmakers, and horror know it alls to guide the way, including your intrepid Kingcast hosts from time to time. This high quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine, never online. So if you want to join in on the fun, you will need to subscribe. And to do that, all you got to do is head on over to fangoria.com and sign up. Kingcast listeners are in the family, so you can save a whopping 25% off your order if you use the code Kingcast at checkout.
0: Now, with all that said, let's get on with the show. My name is Stephen King.
1: The ice
2: is gonna break! Bad rock! Dead
0: rock! see a dead body? Well, sometimes, that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler.
1: And I'm Eric Vespi.
0: And we are your hosts. As per usual, we've got a very exciting show for you this week, folks. And uh, we're tackling a title that we uh, very rarely get to talk about on this show, which makes it extra exciting for for Vespi and I. Uh, Our guest is an actress and writer whose work you've seen in this year's Malum, last year's Torn Hearts, and 2019's Satanic Panic, which, by the way, was written and directed by two former KingCast guests, Grady Hendrix and uh, Chelsea Stardust. She's also the award-winning producer behind 2017 Slash the Musical, as well as a director whose most recent horror short, A Shining Example, takes some serious cues from our show's namesake. Today, she's here to talk to us about that and 1984's Eyes of the Dragon. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Ms. Clark Wolf. Clark, how are you doing today?
2: Hey, y'all. I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so excited to be here.
0: You and I did a live script read at Fantastic Fest last year, and I think at that time I was like, "You should come on the show," and you were like, "Yeah." And then, uh, then I got COVID and promptly <laughs> forgot about every conversation I had, had at Fantastic Fest up until that point. He didn't even and, remember my name. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It was a very He called rough me Walter
1: form. for so for for some reason for like six months. yeah. There's a weird it COVID was... side effect. They don't really talk about in the journals. Yeah, you know? it was
0: a variant on the on the slow or the the long COVID. You know, it's confusion, COVID. Um, but I reached out uh, a few weeks ago and asked if you wanted to come in. And not only did you want to, but it also turns out in the time since you have made a Stephen King inspired short film. So great timing on my part. I meant to do that all. <laughs>
2: What timing indeed. You know, it's funny, Scott, when I uh forget things at Fantastic Fest, I wish I could blame COVID for it. It's usually <laughs> usually uh grapefruit flavored vodka induced forgetting. Right. But um <laughs> yes, this short film uh was not in the works at the time and um and since then I had the opportunity to direct it and um it was a it was a real it was a really wonderful experience and I, and I am officially bitten by the director bug.
0: Mm. Are you? Indeed. Is it? Yeah. It seems like, I feel like that's a thing where the responsibility of it must be crushing. Is it?
2: No, it was exciting. No? Well, here's the thing. Not here's when what it's I'll,
1: not your money, Scott. <laughs> yeah,
2: <fair. laughs> what I would say is, you know, I, I should say that I, um, you know, I, I, was more excited than anything. I I felt ready. I felt really mm-hmm. ready. This was not the first. I had directed a very, very small, little baby short film um, a, a year or so earlier, and that was simply two iPhones, 2 oneers, you know, and that was it. So it was very, very simple, but that was the idea. Um, my friend Buzz Wallach produced it and he started this collective called Just Scare Me, which is just basically like, just make something, just make it. It's not a contest. And um, he likes to refer to it as, as going to the gym, you know, and getting the reps in. And so um, I worked with him on that and, uh, and I was like, okay, this is cool. And then this opportunity came around and I had an actual budget and a crew and, and brought Buzz on to produce it for me, um, or produce it with me. And, um, so I actually felt really confident going in and, and that was a great experience. I think if I were a director for hire on something, maybe it would be different because there are so many variables, you know, um, and that's where I think you hear all those, like the crushing feelings of dread, but, um, but this, this was a beautiful experience.
0: That's awesome. The people listening to this have obviously not seen the short yet, but um, do you want to do you want to describe the uh, the plot for the
1: listeners?
2: Yes, absolutely. It's is you know the, I think the way I explained it in my email is it's the Shining with a mom, um, and that's <laughs> really where where gender flips. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It was like, you know, it was so I was hosting this show on Twitch, um, called Wolf's Call on a channel called Fair HQ. And um and every week I'd do a deep dive into a horror movie. And it would basically be like if I taught film school, here's what my here's what my film school would be. You know, we talk we'd talk mm-hmm. about the making of and development. We did pause and plays, you know, so we could break down scenes and so on. And we did The Shining, um, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And then kind of quickly, either before or after, we did Scott Derrickson's um, uh, Sinister. And there was maybe one other in sort of succession where I was like, huh, what an interesting little subgenre of like creative men who take out their creative frustration on their families. Um mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, why have I never seen that with a mom? Like, why have I never seen that with a woman? And and it, truly, I thought about it and I couldn't really come up with anything, um, you know, that, that sort of did that. So then, and you know, The Shining, um, which I'm sure we will get to, is a big part of my Stephen King origin story. Um, and I certainly, as a horror fan, have always bumped up against Kubrick's movie, not in allegiance to the book, you know, which I'm happy to talk about in a little bit, but like, uh, yeah, I. but but I've come to appreciate Kubrick's movie over time and really um, sort of look at it now from the perspective of how effective I believe Stanley Kubrick was in telling the exact story he wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that is a good adaptation of Stephen King's work is, you know, obviously much Debated, but um, but yeah. So so anyway, uh, I think when people see the short, uh, they will see nods to not only the movie and specific scenes from the movie, but also to uh, Stephen King's novel as well.
0: Right, right. Mm-hmm. You, there's like a moment in there where I was waiting for. There's there's a moment where uh, another character comes into your office while you're writing. Yes. And the second it happened, I was like, she's gonna do the fucking. Mm-hmm. Whenever you hear me typing, you know, and uh, I was just waiting for it. And it takes a second, but you get to it. And I was like, fucking fist pumping. Um, mm-hmm. So you've got that in there, but you've also got the it's you're using the croquet mallets. Instead yes. Of the mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yes. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I saw f- what you were going for. Th-
2: thank you. That was a fun. Uh, I will say that was a very fun uh, director's uh, learning lesson was, um, you know, of course, I approved the mallet before. But it was so small, <laughs> and I, I did remember that. And uh, and uh, and I that you know to to our conversation earlier about our the overwhelm. That is one thing where I I was like it just didn't, the pieces did not quite click that this is going to look so silly if I don't shoot this right holding this little baby croquet mallet. <laughs> um, and fortunately, you know, I had an incredible, uh, incredible DP, Zach Voitas. But, um, but yeah, so we, we made it work and my editor was Tom Newell who's, who's edited so, VHS and, and the Chucky series and so many other things. Um, and so through those powers combined, we were able to sort of hopefully not make it look silly um, but, uh, but yeah, that was a lesson I learned was, oh, how is this going to look on camera? <laughs> yeah, it's not
0: a it's not terribly noticeable, although That's it good. reminds me like I forget. I forget what it was. Uh, it, Vespi, who did we do the thing for where we had to take photos?
1: Oh, um, that was like Austin Monthly or something, right? Yeah, we did. There was a,
0: a a place did a I guess Austin Monthly did a like a story on the show and yeah. Uh, Sorry, there's a giant lawnmower uh, going right by my window. Apparently, Let's wait Is it being
1: telepathically controlled yeah, by a, a say, large yes. naked man?
2: Is it the lawnmower man? Is it Job? Or,
1: yeah, or Job, and or Job, or a chimp wearing a VR headset. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, so we
0: we Austin Monthly did a story on us, and they wanted to take photos of us for the uh, for the article. And so we're like, oh, cool. Should we bring like props and shit? You know, like what? you know, what do you want to do with the photo shoot? They're like, yeah, whatever you want. So, um, motherfucker folks, if you're just going to hear a lawnmower on the show, a couple of times, <laughs>
2: hey, listen, this is, yeah, we, are the, keep, they I'm know gonna, to, gonna, to expect it.
1: I'm yeah, going to keep it,
0: going. That guy couldn't need more than two passes outside that window. Um, <laughs> that's happened so, to me
1: before. So it's totally, totally cool. So Let's I wanted to
0: bring an ax to this photo shoot. And, uh, uh, my roommates at the time, they have all kinds of tools. Turned out they didn't have an ax. And I was like, well, I guess, I guess I could just go buy a fucking axe. You know, I'll probably need it again for some other show-related thing. And then... Or murders. Uh, yeah. And my, <laughs> my one of my roommates was like, oh, my boss uh, says he has an axe you can borrow if you want. I was like, great. So she brought it home from work. And it was, like, small. It was, like, mm-hmm. somewhere in between an axe and a hatchet. So, like, if you see the photo of me in that thing, I'm, like, ho- like swinging an axe. But... uh. Either I look like a giant or the ax looks very small.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. No
0: one has pointed this out, but, uh, every time I see that photo, I'm like, it's only a matter of time before someone asks about that baby (laughs) ax,
2: teeny tiny little weapon.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Meanwhile, I got the world's largest red balloon. Uh, Mm -hmm. so. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a, an interesting. contrast, And we, we did this, uh, without permits in a like little public uh, park right uh, in downtown Austin, like right by the river. And so oh. we're like, like, Hey, this would be a nice spot. And so we're just walking around Scott's carrying an ax and I'm carrying a, a fistful of, of balloons with one giant red, huge balloons. And people, I'm sure, uh, it being Austin, people are like, okay, it's just a normal every, average day in downtown Austin right now.
2: I was about to say, welcome yeah. to Texas. Yeah, I, nobody was asking to see your permits. for open
0: your, carry. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: open carry is right.
0: So how long did it take you from concept to execution, like all in to make this short?
2: Um, so I actually, so I took the first pass at the script, um, in the summer of 2022 and then was going to sort of produce it myself and then, uh, kind of put that on, oh, I booked Malum. And so, um, I was in, you know, Louisville and I was shooting that movie and, um, and, you know, other things kind of came up. And then the opportunity came to, uh, f- to have this produced by, by a, a company. And so, um, so at that, so when that happened though, you know, I got that phone call on October 30th and we were in production <laughs> on like December, mm, I don't know, 8th. It was like, And of course, you know, working without uh, it was the COVID was very much an issue at that time. And um, certainly, uh, you know, the holidays were an issue. Um, So it felt like it came up very fast. And then I will say, um, I won't say who it was, but um, I actually had written this part, the part of Jeff, the husband, for an actor in particular, and he had agreed to do it. And the day before we started shooting, he called me and said, I just tested positive for COVID. Um, fuck. Yeah. And uh, so it was in... That is just... uh, I cannot wait for people to see Andy Cohen's performance. <laughs> and his, the actor who plays Jeff is named Andy Cohen. Not that one. Um, <laughs> but he's um, he is so wonderful in the movie. And on top of that, he got that script Uh, less than 24 hours before he was on set. Like he, he just, he was such a team player. He showed up and, you know, I think it, he just, he was wonderful. He was absolutely wonderful. And, you know, that was another thing where as a director, I'm just like, well, you know what, we are shooting this in Los Angeles uh, we have a million other actors that are here. We are mm-hmm. going to figure this out. And, um, and so certainly, you know, uh, it was, Andy was a referral and I cast him off his reel actually. Um, oh, nice. but he was amazing. And I, I'm really, as a director, I am so proud of his work and he took the direction so well and to do it with no prep time to learn his lines and to show up. It was, Andy was just a lifesaver.
1: Well, tell That's Michael awesome. Shannon to uh, be more careful next time.
2: Yes, know, I would.
1: Not go out and party the night before with all of his COVID friends.
2: How did you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, one last thing I want to bring up about your short uh, that I noticed is that uh, we're in the Fangoria podcast family here with the short because I believe I spotted uh, Colors of the Dark's Rebecca McKendry's, uh daughter in your you, in your short. So. You sure did, Marnie McKendry. I, and I connected some dots because I'd seen like on Facebook, you know, I'm friends with Rebecca, and so like every you know every other day, it's like, oh, here's a picture of the family on this trip. Here's a picture of the family, you know, doing this. And then there was one time, it's like, and then here's a picture of of uh, my daughter covered in blood. She's in her first thing. I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then I watch your short. I'm like, that's what that was.
2: Oh, you know, it's funny. I am not on Facebook, so I did not know that information. But uh, that's great. And I shouldn't Mari- be
1: on Facebook, so you're, <laughs> you're you're doing the right thing.
2: Scott knows he he DM'd me on Twitter to to make this invitation, and <laughs> yeah. I and I only saw it because um, because I get the notifications, and I was like, I'm sorry, buddy, I'm never on here. Can we do this via email? And so, uh-huh. um, But uh, Marnie was lovely. Marnie did a self-tape for me and um, I had thought of her, you know, I I know obviously Becca in real life, Becca and Dave and their kids, and I knew Marnie was uh, wanting to act more and she was the right age and so she did a self-tape and then I did a callback with her where I went to, you know, her house and I filmed the callback and I directed her and she did such a great job and then um, that she got the part
1: so what is it with uh, that you need to, to find as a director for a, a child actor to make it work because I've always heard that like Spielberg's secret is that he doesn't he doesn't cast a kid to fit a role he's makes the role more fit the kid is that something that you you discovered while you were working with uh, children in your first Your first thing?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, for me personally, um, uh, I I think it is about absolutely molding the part to fit – uh, to fit the child. But also I try as a director, I really try to treat my, uh, you know, her as, as an actor, you know, I try not to talk down to her. Like she's a kid, you know, I try to treat her like a professional. And I hope that, I hope that by not only seeing like her mom, you know, who was pregnant, who was on set, pregnant with her, uh, you know, there's a great photo. I believe that's Marnie in her belly, but either way, Becca (laughs) never stops. And, um, so I really, I tried to sort of, form even more of a bond with Marnie as a director, just to make her feel comfortable. I think when you're directing kids, um, you know, being patient, of course, but but also just making sure that they feel comfortable and that they feel safe, which right. is directing really any actor. Um, but it's even more important, I think, for the kids to trust you and to, um, and, you know, there were, there were a lot of takes... I I think for me as a director, I made sure that I knew what my coverage was. Um, So, you know, there are takes where you see the back of my head, I'm dirty in the frame, but of course it's Marnie's coverage and, you know, I'll be directing her I just let the camera roll. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and that, that was really, I find that when you have a playful kind of moment with them and you can sort of get them in that comfort zone, you can have a little bit of fun and, and they can have a little bit of fun. Um, so that was, that was a really wonderful experience kind of learning how to, how to do that and, um, to do it, do it with more precision. So, uh, yeah, yeah it was, it was lovely.
1: So what's the plan with the the short? I assume you're going out to festivals. Uh, Do you have a a kind of, I guess a game plan is the word I'm looking for. Do you have a game plan for when like people who are listening to this and might want to see the short, you know, when do you know when they can see it?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to, I would bet that they could potentially see it this Halloween season. Um, <laughs> we are still working out distribution, um, but I am feeling very optimistic that it will be appearing on a platform that I'm sure your listeners are very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and I am very hopeful that it will be playing at Fantastic Fest. We will be having our world premiere at Fantastic Fest 2023. Should it continue? Uh, I think it will. I think the fest, I hope the fest goes on. Obviously, we in the entertainment industry are going through a little bit of, we just have, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty right now. Right. um, but I am very hopeful that Fantastic Fest will continue. I have no reason to think it won't. And I'm very hopeful that uh, we are selected to play there and I can show up as a director and um, and sort of support the film in that way um, while still supporting my brothers and sisters and friends in SAG, which I am a member of, and also the WGA.
0: Well, I can't <laughs> imagine a better place to... Uh... You know, premiered if that's where it ends Ooh, up. Oh, my fingers like, are
2: so crossed.
0: Yeah, that's that's the, exactly the audience you want seeing that particular short. You know, I you appreciate. Could show, I mean, anyone can watch that, but an audience like a Fantastic Fest crowd, who's going to be intimately familiar with The Shining to begin with, is going to, you know, they're going to pick up on all the jokes and shit, and they're they're savvy. You know, I really hope crowd. so.
2: Thank what you. What do you think
0: it will get in? And also, <laughs> uh, for any of our listeners, you know. You should come to Fantastic Fest. You can see Clark Short and um, you might see Eric and I doing something there. You never know. Yes.
1: You, so, you, might, see, you might see Scott get COVID again. <laughs> <For a third laughs> God time.
0: fucking help me. Oh, I need to get a booster before. before yeah, Fantastic do it two Fest weeks two
1: weeks before. Because I think right it takes on. like ten days for the yeah right for on.
0: it to be at peak effectiveness. Well, one more thing for me to deal with when I get back to Austin. But um, <laughs> Clark, let's uh, let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. What would that be?
2: Yes. So, um, cinematically, my Stephen and when Stephen King first, you know, sort of came on my radar was when I was five years old, um, and my babysitter showed me for some inexplicable reason the It miniseries um and it scared <laughs> me yeah at 5 uh my mother was furious because i certainly could not sleep for <laughs> many 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 months i was terrified and um and certainly i remember even in middle sc- or even in elementary school seeing kids like having Stephen King books on their desk as like mm-hmm. fifth graders and fourth graders, and I was—I even then I was like, "Wow, that's a big book." What What are you doing with that? Um, but I know that so many people's origin story and and mine actually—I did not read my first Stephen King book until I was like twenty seven. Um, it was oh, and wow. it was The Shining. It was the it was the Shining, and um, and I really, I mean, the Shining is one of my favorite books of his, and um, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I it sort of confirmed for me all of my opinions about the movie, um, mm-hmm. and so uh, and so you know I like re- but I d- had no idea that that was Stephen King's sort of take, but you know everything that he sort of says about. Jack kind of starting at an 11 or like, you know, the Kubrick's movie is very cold and my book is very hot. Like those are those I think I couldn't agree more with those two assessments. Um, And certainly fans are able to love and embrace both. Um, Mike Flanagan, you know, obviously is I think did a completed a miracle did a miracle with with his adaptation of dr Sleep like oh yeah I just i mean it it was it was so well executed considering what he had to bridge um mm-hmm. and so but that book uh that book I have returned to it many times I have returned to Dr Sleep many times and then um i I you know I read it and the story I always tell is that I um, I started reading it and I was like okay you know great but then I discovered that Steven Weber read the audiobook for it mm-hmm. and um, I tell you what that is I tell people like if you are a person who can enjoy audiobooks, let Steven Weber tell you a story. Like oh, he, he's so good. It is just to me, it is the definitive way to experience that book. And I I mean all forty something hours of it and I have listened to it. Many times, I just am enthralled in that world. So, um, for me, you know that. So, yeah, my my Stephen King origin story, especially in terms of being a reader, came much later in my adult life. But certainly, being a pop culture fan, I read you know I I read his article in Entertainment Weekly when he had one, and I certainly right. knew all the movies and had seen the movies as well.
1: Yeah, that's that's something that's really interesting. We've actually tried to build like a bonus episode kind of around his EW Mm. um, stuff, Uh, but those are extremely hard to find. Like, you have to actually like buy all those original back issues. I would have thought that would have been a uh, a task that some you know hardcore King fan would have done, like compile all that and put it online because that's where he has like his best of the year, his worst Mm. of the year, and that's. You know that's when he where he shows like all the random shit. You know how uh, how crazy it is that fucking Christopher Nolan loves McGruber or <laughs> hear like what was it Hitchcock's favorite favorite movie it was like Smokey and the Bandit or something. It's like it's like you you have you hear that kind of stuff and then you hear like Tarantino's crazy opinions. But King is just as is wonky where he'll like he'll love a random like John Travolta you know forgettable. Post like pol- money
2: plane. plane or something, yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah he'll, he'll love that and, and then like shit talk, you know, the movie everybody loves that year, you know, it's right. like it's like all that's fascinating. So, I'm gonna task now one of the listeners go buy all those back issues, put it online because I don't want to do the work, but I want to look at all that stuff. <laughs> So well, good he's call. such
2: a such a connoisseur of pop culture, and always right. has been. And I think that that is so evident when you read his work. Like there are there are certain theme, there are certain things like that we all know as King fans and readers that pop up over and over and over again. But his obsession with pop culture, music, comic books, movies, uh, you know, monsters, all of it—it's just like it's it's endless. And I love—I will say that's one of the things that I do admire. About him and think that you can see his evolution as a man. I think, like through his writing and through his work, yeah. but also through his Absolutely. pop culture consumption. You know,
0: right? Absolutely true. I mean, you can you can chart like <clears throat> I don't know. Like uh, there's a lot of we've talked about this on the show before, so I don't want to belabor the point. But his a lot of his early writing is uh, clunky in a way. Um, Mm -hmm. when it's, you know, writing about say women or, you know, uh, white folks, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some, uh, some creaky things in there and you can see like over the, over the course of his, um, body of work that, that his, his, his opinions have changed that he is, he's, I don't know if he's necessarily softened so much as he's become more enlightened is how Mm -hmm. I would look at it. And, uh, I think that's a really fucking admirable thing. To be able
1: to see, right? Well, he and, well he cares about not just writing the two D version of of certain right. things that he doesn't have direct connection to. You know, may, maybe it's just purely, uh, you know, living a life and meeting more people and realizing that not uh, every black person you know talks like a a, a pimp from the early seventies or something. You know what I mean? You're <laughs> right. Like, uh, you know, I I think that that's a lot of it. You know, but. It's clear you talk about it like I remember in my reread of it, um, I was really kind of taken aback at how nuanced the uh, he was handling uh, the gay characters, you know, the, the, yeah. the death that that um, uh, kicks everything off. You know, the guy that's thrown over. Adrian the bridge. Mellon. Right.
2: Adrian. Yeah.
1: yeah. And and I assume be, that the reason why he kind of like was like, I got to actually you know, step up here is because he based that off of a real thing that happened in Bangor, like a real, mm-hmm. a, a real, uh, hate crime that happened there. And and I think that he, that that affected his community in, in such a way and affected him personally. Like maybe that's not the demarcation line. Maybe that's the, you know, just, you know, it had happened earlier, but that's when I noticed as a reader, him going like, I just, for the time that the early eighties, when he was writing that it's like, that yeah. was the height of, of the, you know, AIDS panic and all, you know, the, the gay people be like, Oh my God, if I use a toilet after them, I'm going to get their, their gay disease. You know, like that, that's kind of the way the, the, the straight community was thinking back then the, at least the, the right wingers were. And uh, um, you know, so it's like, it, it's, it, it was pretty astounding to me going back and reading the Adrian Mellon s- section and going, reading the empathy that he had for the character and how he, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like maybe that's, you know, I, I don't know what point I'm getting at here other than I think that that's kind of where I noticed him like kind of going, OK, I need to take this stuff just a little bit you know, more serious. It doesn't have to be, you know, every gay character or every you know, per- character of color is a perfect character, you know, and does no wrong. That's that's just as reductionist, you know. So, you know, you know, he was treating them like he would treat all of his, his straight white characters that he had, you know, mm hmm. Yeah.
2: Well and I think to your point the the acknowledgement of what it or acknowledging what it means to live in a small town you know and right. and be diff, quote unquote different or not heteronormative right? right like the what does that look like for for people outside of you know people that look like Stephen King you know and um and I think that in order to have a love for something, which I think he clearly does have a love for, you know, Maine and, and his the smaller town lifestyle. You know, I think you have to be able to criticize it and want it to be better, you know, because, because you love it. I think that's also the same with pop culture in general. It's why we're talking about this. You know, we can say we love and appreciate Stephen King and his entire body of work, but we can also, because we love it, sort of set point out, Hey, this isn't great, you know? Uh, And, um, and that's all a part of the legacy. And I think the imperfections too, especially, you know, it's no secret to anyone that Stephen King is a, is an alcoholic and in recovery. And, um, Um, And I think that, you know, the the imperfections of the human existence is such a big part of of who he is and what he's wrestling with. And, you know, um, he's a he's a just a fascinating creator. And um, how lucky are we that we've gotten to see that evolution and participate in it? You know,
1: yeah, it's also worth pointing out that he started so young. Yes. You know what I mean? It's like, we some of his published work was written in college, you know, the long walk was written in college, you know, it's uh, that that dude when he hit it big, you know, was in his early 20s. It's like, you know, he had a lot of growing as a human to do just as we all did. And, uh, you know, he did it through his work. And that's, again, like you said, not to diminish anything that he did that might not hold up to 2023, you know, moral standards you know it's clear his heart was always in the right place we always point out that king is a very empathetic writer yes. you know he he has empathy for all of his characters including you know the real despicable ones and i think that's part of the reason why uh his work touches people and connects with people in in uh in the way that it does is because you know you can tell that he as a as a human being and as an author has empathy you know for his characters for his readers for everything you know it's like you know and so when you have empathy it's, it's not it's not an impossible task to grow matter of fact it's really hard not to grow uh you know uh beyond you know kind of your rural upbringing you know mm-hmm. yeah
2: yeah for sure so
0: so the title you have brought us this week is eyes of the dragon yes. um this is one of my i have a real soft spot for this one because as, as i've mentioned on the show before this was technically the first Stephen King book I was exposed to oh, when I was wow. a kid. Yeah, my, uh, my parents went out of town on vacation for a few weeks. My grandparents came in to stay, and uh, I guess my mom had bought the book, or my grandmother had the book or something. Anyway, she read it to me at night when I wow. like, to put me to sleep, which is perfect because it's like a fairy tale, you know? Um, yeah. But that is sort of what kick-started my whole... You know, love of king besides the fact that his books were all over the goddamn house because you know my mom was a reader you know and i was you know really intrigued by the covers but yeah i love this one and it's it's not a um it's not an oft-requested title it i don't often see it mentioned in right you know lists of um people's favorite king novels but uh yeah i really like this one
2: Oh, boy. I mean, and how how cool. So my parents, my, my mom is a big reader as well, but she was never really into Stephen King. She, I, that, I did not grow up with Stephen King books around the house. Um, but you know, the, uh, my, my takeaway when I first read this one was, uh, okay, Stephen King uh, read The Princess Bride and said, I can do that. Um, yeah for for me as a i I love William Goldman's novel the princess bride um I obviously love the movie as well I think they're beautiful companions but um, i I feel so much uh so much hat tipping in the eyes of the dragon to William Goldman's uh, the princess bride and so that that immediately endeared me to this this book you know I grew up in the 80s and or I was in 80s 90s kid, you know. So mm-hmm. as a result, I grew up on the never ending story and the Princess Bride and legend and labyrinth and like, right. that, you know, fairy tales were so much a part of my horror introduction. You know, my introduction to loving genre storytelling absolutely came by way of dark fantasy. And so uh, when I first, when I read this, I was like, wow, I can't wait to give this book to a little boy. Like, do you know what I mean? Like my, yeah. <laughs> my best friend has a son and he is turning four in September. And I'm just like, oh, I can't wait for Brody to be old enough for me to give him Eyes of the Dragon. Like immediately that was my, and, you know, for me, my uh, part of my L.A. story Is I've been in LA for 15 years, but I have been a nanny um, a couple of times. And funny enough, I mostly would nanny boys for whatever reason. And so I remember reading Harry Potter to one of the kids when he went to bed. And I, you know, I, I, have such a, I just like it's so cool to me that this book is, a, has a moral compass and, but yet is not soft um, and is, is accessible to kids, but has such, uh, I don't know, it has, it has just a very human center. And I think that's what makes it. You know, so fun for me as an adult to to read it as well. Like the tale of class and the tale of, you know, um, what a what a good leader is and what a villainous leader is, and you know, it, the the parable that is present throughout most fairy tales, especially when you're dealing with kings and and siblings and the throne and whatever is is universal. And this is such a great, I just think it's such a great bridge into a Game of Thrones or a you know right. whatever.
1: It is bridge is a perfect word for this, this book. Um, because to, to me, this is uh, eyes of the dragon is like training wheels for the dark tower. So, yes. yeah. so it's um we actually often get asked like, what books should you read beforehand? And, and I always forget to say eyes of the dragon because the, the, the dark tower has like lots of deep connections, direct connections to Salem's lot and uh, the stand specifically. And, but those, you know, those are pretty big books and, I think my answer now is just going to be like read Eyes of the Dragon. It's like yeah. you it accomplishes get, you get... the
0: same thing that reading the Stand does in terms of informing you uh, of, of Flag's character.
1: Right? Yeah, right. exactly. So... It's sh- shorter. It's in that world. It's like directly in reference to 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 be in in Midworld, I believe. So it's like it's like yeah, it's definitely training wheels there. I, I love the origin of this story where this was something you know he was kind of making up. Uh, you know, as a bedtime story for his daughter. like Also and,
2: very similar to The Princess Bride.
1: Ex- mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, and, uh, and how he ended up just writing it. And I also kind of love, I'm, I'm sure he didn't love it at the time, but I also love that he broke. This is one of his early instances of breaking away from what he was known for. And, uh, you know, and he apparently heard about it a lot. Uh, you know, when he did that, he he heard from lots of angry fan letters going. This isn't why we like Stephen King. It's not this young adult fantasy crap. Of course, young adult wasn't a term back then, but you know, same diff. This kitty fantasy stuff, and you know, uh, you know, I do. I, I don't know. I, I I love it as as like one of the early indicators of I'm not just going to write stories about vampires and. You know, and, and devils and stuff, right? This is going to be something that's a little bit more fun. And as you said, it has shares a little bit more DNA with The Princess Bride than it does, say, you know, The Shining. Yeah. So.
2: Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. And I also think too, you know, um, Stephen King, I actually think it's, it's of course, I understand the idea of, wait, I come to use Stephen King to scare me, not to tell me fairy tales. But the thing is, Stephen King's work overwhelming, and I was thinking about this, I, I literally finished my re-listen to the audiobook. Two minutes before we started recording, ah,
1: done by um, the great Bronson Pinchot, uh, by the
2: way, who is my second favorite narrator behind uh, the wonderful Stephen Weber. Um, this Both of is, whom this, have
1: been guests on our show. I just want to point out. Yeah. Yes,
2: I mean, and did, did Bronson uh, did Bronson talk about this at all? Did he talk yeah, about? It's on, he, I'd say oh, half
1: of that episode is him talking about it, and we get into this really deep thing where he was. I forgot what was his preferred thing, because he really bristled at, at uh, being called an audiobook narrator. He's like, I'm not narrating, I'm performing. But performing. He also, but he also didn't say that it was like an audio performance either. I he called it something I, very specific. Yeah, uh, I
0: forget uh, where we landed on that.
1: But Was it a I reading, remember... maybe? It seems maybe. like it, was some... it might have been, but... but but you should definitely go back I and will. listen to that especially as a as a fan of his read there that's like one he's great and he's just great to talk to but he he talks quite in depth about uh, about uh, his his work on the Ice of the Dragon audiobook yeah
2: Oh, I love that. You know, I, okay, so I'm going to name drop a little. Here we yeah, go. Ready? Um, I was at a party one time or a barbecue one time with, with Steven Weber and um, hadn't met him yet. And so, uh, but you know, he was obviously friendly with two, a, a couple of the people that I knew at the barbecue right. and he's just the nicest man. Um, so he's very approachable. But so I, we started, he introduced himself. We started chit chatting for a minute and then I said, all right. I got to tell you something. And I said, uh, you know, and I told him, I said, your reading of It is, in my opinion, the definitive way to experience that book. I have told so many people to, I've listened to you read that book multiple times. It is such an incredible performance. I mean, just like totally got, and he was so, um, taken aback in the best way because right. I'm sure that of all the things people talk to Stephen Weber about, his reading of the audiobook of It might not be <laughs> at, at the not. top of that list. But to the point where, you know, he was very gracious and very kind. And so we, you know, said, okay, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And so I was in the kitchen talking with a friend and he came back by and he's like, hey, I just wanted to say thanks again for all that. That was so nice. And I was just like, you're welcome. And also, that what a hell of a job you did! That book is so long. Um, so yeah, it's it's a remarkable. And you know, I gotta say um, to any of your listeners, I don't know if this is a, a, a debate that they get into, but um, I am a huge advocate for audiobooks for whatever reason. Um, my brain, the way I, I can read fiction. And it's fiction specifically, um, because certainly I read nonfiction, you know, all the time, but um, and keeping up with the news and everything. But uh yeah, audiobooks are so important to to the way I read fiction and experience fiction. And speaking of the stand, you know, that was one of the first audiobooks I ever bought was mm. uh, Grover Gardner's reading mm-hmm. of the stand.
1: And um,
2: yeah. God, his his franny voice was just, I was like, I, I can't. Fr- I, I will admit I am not a fan of that book. Um, our, I am a member of the Losers Book Club, which I know you've had Chelsea Stardust on. And I believe you've had Josh Miller on. Yes. Um, and I'm sure many, many members of our book club. But I really tried again. Like I really tried to read The Stand when we did it in our book club. And I was just like, sorry, y'all, it's not happening. I hate this. Mm. Um, but that said, I bring it up because the, the narrator or the performer or the reader makes such a big difference. And one right. of the reasons that I appreciate Bronson and Stephen in their readings is that they don't give the women these little silly women voices, and this is how girls talk. And you're just like, oh, heavens, this is, you are offending me. I can't, like, I can't take this seriously. Um, And so I always appreciate it when narrators don't do that. And they are two examples, Bronson and Stephen, of, like, exceptional readings of women.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, they're both, they're both sweethearts. Those guys, I almost punched Stephen Weber in the
1: face. <laughs> no, why? <laughs> this is another event. axe story, I believe. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, uh, we Wampler's second
1: event. axe story of the episode. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we did an event uh, last December in LA with uh, Stephen Weber and Mike Flanagan,
1: Mick uh, Garris, Henry
0: Thomas, Mick Garris. It was like a history of The Shining. Uh, yeah, animal. yeah. I think I and, remember uh,
2: seeing photos and being very yeah, jealous.
0: Yeah, it was a good time. I, th- you were probably shooting your short
2: probably right around actually. that same
0: time because it was like first week of December. Yeah, in, that
2: sounds about right.
0: Yeah. Um but like right before <laughs> right before the fucking thing I um was walking the convention floor and I bought like a prop axe and <laughs> brought it back to like the green room where everyone was like hanging out before the event and uh had everybody sign it, right?
2: Oh, cool. And That's awesome. Y- yeah.
0: And um so I took it out on stage with me and then afterwards we were kind of hanging out back over where that green room area was, which was near a mm-hmm. bathroom. Um, And I was sort of like standing there talking to Vespy and his girlfriend and like sort of leaning on the ax, like it was a cane, you know, while oh, I was gosh. talking <laughs> and Steven Weber came up fucking behind me and like grabbed it out from under my hand, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and I thought it was just some asshole grabbing my fucking ax <laughs> and about to make a run for it. So I like turned around and like, like my arm coming up, you know, <laughs> and in a split second, like I recognize, oh, it's Weber you oh know I was like, it was like best we saw this happen oh like,
1: I am so glad you remember this because I was going to prompt you for this story if, if it didn't jump immediately to mind. Uh, oh yeah because the look on he's not exaggerating the look on his face was somebody's about to be knocked the fuck out <laughs> and, when we- and then when Weber saw that he just fucking laughed <laughs> <laughs> I mean Steven is a
2: tall man too yeah. like yeah. he's a yeah. big dude I yeah. would not want to fight I mean not that Steven Weber Steven if you're listening oh, not that be- I
0: anyway. yeah i, I think
2: he's a big guy so I, yeah fair enough oh my god yeah
0: it was just like reflex you know yeah. like someone's taking your shit you start swinging you know but you murder uh, them absolutely yeah, he's a he's a mis- <laughs> mischievous little scamp love love steve <laughs> i love Whatever. oh
2: my god
1: Hey, y'all. We're kicking off this mid-roll, welcoming back a fairly new sponsor. We're going to be talking a bit about Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. We have a hard and fast rule here at the KingCast that if we don't like a product, we won't endorse it. Factor sent me some samples, and I gotta say, they're not lying when they say these ready-to-eat meals are made with the freshest ingredients, and they're clearly overseen by someone who knows their dietary shit, at least more than yours truly. These are different from the other popular meal kits that you've heard about that, you know, they send the ingredients to your door and then you cook them up. This is way more straightforward than that. Uh, They're ready to heat and eat. They're like the best TV dinners you've ever had. And I was shocked at how tasty each meal was. I had a pesto chicken dish that was just as moist as if I'd made the meal from scratch. And their veggies were liberally buttered and delicious, which I appreciated. (laughs) If you've got a crazy, hectic life or you're just lazy like I am and don't want to make multiple trips to the grocery store every week, then try out Factor and you'll get a week's worth of delicious, high-quality meals that will be ready to eat after just a few minutes in the microwave. They're healthy, too, but don't taste like it. You choose the kinds of foods you want to eat, whether it's high protein, low calorie, or just whatever tastes the best, and their staff will tailor their meals for you. Head to Factormeals.com slash KingCast50 and use code KingCast50, thats five zero to get 50 percent off thats code kingcast 50 at factormealscom slash kingcast 5-0, to get 50% off. That's code KingCast50 at Factormeals.com slash KingCast50 to get 50% off. Very well
0: done, Eric. Now, I am here to talk to you about our friends over at Scape's Action Figure Displays on Etsy. Listen, we here at the KingCast are huge collectors of pop culture memorabilia, and that's why we're suggesting that you check out the creations made by Scape's Action Figure Displays on Etsy. The shop has a major selection of movie and action figure accessories from damaged skulls to light up kryptonite, from Pennywise to the Terminator, from Batman to Bane. You have to see for yourself what this shop is has to offer. Folks, do you have a Batman or a Superman action figure? Are they just packed away in a storage container or kicked under the bed by a child? (laughs) Don't do that to Batman. Secure his fate as the overseer of justice with the Batman rooftop action figure display. Do you have a copy of The Shining all alone on the shelf? Add the red rum door to add characters to your library. The Pennywise in the sewer is also nothing to chuckle at. See all these items and more including costumes and digital art at etsy.com backslash shop backslash scapes figures, or you can search for action figures displays on Etsy. Your number one place for custom made items. Once again, that is etsy.com backslash shop backslash scapes figures. Also, by the way, mention King 15 for 15% off whatever you order.
1: Ooh, nice fancy discount. And I got to say, yes. I have one of the red rum, uh, doors, displays. And it's really cool. I gotta say, it's pretty neat. Yeah, sometimes you look at those Etsy things, and you're like, "Oh, the picture looks good," and then you get them, and it's like, "Oh, this was uh, slapped together out of cardboard and spit." Uh, right. But not these. These these are legit. I, I gotta say, I just wanted yeah, it to look like in high little... quality
0: stuff. I, yeah. I, I want to be clear that I'm not. I was not chuckling at the uh, <laughs> at the at the product itself. I just it was the specificity of <laughs> having a Batman figure, but then. <laughs> you packed it away, and then someone, kicked, a, a child, kicked it under <laughs> a bed. That's like a very specific series of events to occur. Right,
1: and it happens to the to the best of us, you know. Sure. Whether you have a child or not, they they are just known for kicking Batman figures under beds.
0: That is fair. That is fair. It comes
1: with the package. But uh, anyway, I think we should get back to the show. Let's get back to the show, shall we?
0: Let's do it.
2: i think I might have gotten distracted on my own talking about these wonderful gentlemen but mm. i do think that to go back to the um the you know this isn't what i want from stephen king and, right. and the eyes mm. of the dragon specifically so much of stephen king's work is truly about good and evil and i think what I love about his horror novels is he loves to a lot of time live in the gray, you know, Jack Torrance's mm-hmm. it, it's his, it's fighting, it's a fight to quell his demons. It's not as black and white as, you know, perhaps Jack Nicholson's performance or what, you know, it's not a black and white situation with Jack Torrance. Um, and, and this kind of goes on and on. We see how people are influenced and how they make their choices whether they are quote-unquote good or bad and what i think is so interesting about the eyes of the dragon is it's so stephen king like it's so it not only in the personality but like in this epic vision of addressing the ideas of good and evil and you know Thomas who is the little brother of P- of Peter our hero um right. you know both both kids who are born to Roland the king you know Thomas is not necessarily our quote unquote villain he's he makes choices though and that's the thing that i think is so beautiful about eyes of the dragon is everybody is making choices at all times and therefore has to deal with the outcome of those choices they and and same with peter who is our hero you know peter could be an entitled piece of shit all things considered but he right. chooses not to be you know and um and and so i i kind of love I kind of really, really love um, his his uh, Stephen King playing around in that good and evil sandbox within the realm of a fairy tale.
1: Right now, it, it occurs to me as we're talking that we're forty five plus minutes into this uh, episode, and we haven't talked about the plot of <laughs> *Isaac right. the Dragon*. <laughs> um, just in case anybody listening has made it this far. Uh, and has not read the book or it's been a long time, would you mind like just giving them a, a quick rundown? It doesn't have to be a beat by beat or anything, but just like, what is this book about? Like, you know, and in, in the broadest terms, yes. just, you know, would you mind doing doing that for, for our Absolutely. beautiful listeners?
2: Yeah. I have the Wikipedia open and I will not read it to you word <laughs> for word, but I, I I need, I need to Oh yeah. And then this, you're just going to but... read
1: the URL for the Wikipedia entry <laughs> yeah, and say, exactly. now you do the work. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um okay so eyes of the dragon uh takes place in a kingdom called Delane. and mm-hmm. it is the it, it centers around king roland uh and his magician uh name known as flag um so any dark ta- as you both alluded to earlier any dark mm-hmm. tower readers will recognize those names king roland and his wife queen sasha have two kids one is peter and one is thomas and um And we find, you know, and and unfortunately, Queen Sasha uh, dies during childbirth. Or so we think. Question mark. Um, <laughs> during giving birth to to Thomas, and so we we spend some time with Roland as the king. We spend some time with Peter and Thomas in adolescence. And unfortunately, uh, you know, when the boys are are teens, tweens slash teens, uh, Roland is poisoned. King Roland is murdered, and Peter uh, and uh, and this is not a secret. Flag is responsible, um, and so. Um He frames Peter, our hero. Um, and so Peter is taken to jail and uh put high in the tower the needle and yeah. thomas is left to totally inept and probably what 12 14 years old uh yeah, I, think, assumes, I think
1: he's pre preteen for sure yeah I mean, he's, he's not, pretty young he's a tri- child king yeah
2: yes yeah. um and so yes he's crowned up thank you wikipedia he is crowned at 12 years old hmm. um so and of course this is flag's plan all along he thomas is the is the, arguably the weaker of the two boys and and has no business being king, and so Flag knows that he can essentially shadow rule, um, and so that's that's the premise. And then, of course, you can learn, you can read the book or listen to Bronson uh, tell, read it to you, and find out why it's called the Eyes of the Dragon. And <laughs> uh, and you know, another thing that I really love about this book is all the side characters. Um, I noticed right. that more this time around. How we certainly spend a lot of time with with Peter and Thomas and Roland, but about halfway through. You know, we we're we're left to experience Peter trying to break out of jail, and uh, and so we get to know all the friends they've made along the way, and we get to know the people in Delane. And I really like that King spends so much time there.
1: Right? Yeah. And. In- I, I as a kid, and I'm going to spoil a lot of this stuff. So if you haven't listened <laughs> to it uh, or read read the book or listened to Bronson's version, now's the time to pause and go do that, and then revisit us in in a, in a few days or weeks or however long it takes you to read. Um, because the, I remember my reading as a kid, the image of of. Um, the the children or the child like peering through the eye of the dragon. There's like a mounted dragon head that that's on the wall from, from, you know, the last dragon that was found and and killed by a a previous King. Right. Um, and it's actually like hollowed out and you think it's like this taxidermy dragon head, but it's hollowed out and there's a secret passage where you can like peer through its eyes and, uh, you know, and somebody witnesses the murder of the King. And I will say that much. And, um, the image of that like struck me so much as a kid reading this. Um, And I was actually trying to remember if I'd read this before or after um, the first few dark tower books. And I'm pretty sure it was after, because I remember being a little confused as whether or not King Roland was my Roland from the dark tower Mm -hmm. or not. Um, And it's not really, it's like kind of this, you know, I don't know. It's, it's something that's like connective tissue to dark tower, but it's not the same character at all. Um, right. uh, but flag is the same character. So that's where some of the shit gets confusing, but I guess people can have the same name. You know what I mean? Uh, But but I'll always remember the image. And I seem to remember that there's like some like illustrations at the chapter headings, right. In the, in these, uh, in these books, kind of like what, uh, what happened with Harry Potter later on. Down, mm-hmm. down the road where like every chapter started with like a little black and white drawing kind of top.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, uh, and I remember the image of, of the dragon itself, you know, with, with an eye peering through it. And uh, um, I don't know, there's just something about that, like, you know, to, to your point, Clark, about wanting to share the story with children. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of this, it's not only a great uh, training wheels for the dark tower. It's a great training wheels for King him, himself, Yeah, you know? um so, uh, yeah, there's something about reading this when you're a kid that like makes it hit extra hard. Um, uh, and the same thing can be said about it, you know? And so, you know, I think maybe that's why as a young reader, like, cause I started real young with King, you know, that I connected to so many of these stories in the way I did, whether it was the body or it or any of these stories that have, uh, children protagonists. Um, You know he just writes children so well, and this is him kind of at the height of his powers of of doing that of of you know characterization. Um, And I think Scott and I we we talked a a bit in previous episodes about how um, King at this time was raising his kids. Like so, you know uh, he had he had three children at this time and was very he didn't need to be reminded what childhood was like because he was surrounded by it twenty four (laughs) seven. Right. So I think that that may be the key to. Just how well he's able to tap into, you know, that the particular child language and psychology and all that stuff is sure his own childhood, uh, but also the fact that, you know, he was being very observant with uh, with uh, Joe, Owen and Naomi, you know, as, Mm -hmm. as all that stuff was happening around him.
2: For sure. Absolutely. I mean, I think too, you know, look, I would say too, I think Stephen King is one of the more um, human writers that I have ever experienced, but I don't know. I just as you were talking, I was thinking if he's one of the more mature writers I've ever read, you know, certainly he deals with adult thoughts and themes, but I suppose there is a little bit of childlike approach to kind of yeah. everything, it, you know, I mean, gosh, I think about it like across the board and, and no, no wonder he's writing Teens and Carrie or, you know, Jack Torrance is certainly immature, but Danny is such a wonderful character. Danny Danny Torrance is one of my favorite characters in all of the Stephen King that I've ever hmm. read. And, and you know, I love I'm, I'm reading fairy tale um, I'm in the middle of fairy tale now, actually, and I'm loving it uh, much more than The Talisman. I don't know if how you guys, where are you guys at on The Talisman, by the way? Oh, we like I, love The I, Talisman. You love it. I, yeah. I started it and when the Duffers were announced that they were going to mm-hmm. do an adaptation of it, and um, oof, I really had, shru- I had trouble with it. But meanwhile, I'm like in love with fairy tale. So I don't know what that is. Why That why is really
0: would, wild. Because we've had, yeah, because uh, I'm, I'm mixed positive on fairy tale. Uh-huh. I think, I think Vespy's a little, a little more negative on it. Is that right? Vespi? I,
1: I'd say mixed positive, but if you're at like 75%, I'm probably like 65% or something. Okay. Yeah. You know, thereabouts. You know, I'm not, not too far off from you. Yeah. But I've, we've, you know, we have talked
0: about fairy tale on the show and, you know, I know of a few times we've heard from readers that are that have read it and they just they don't like it, you know, and that, you know, that it's it's got a slow start, which is true. It takes 200 pages for them to get to the, you know, uh, Empus. Yes. And then, you know, there's have you gotten to the dungeon yet?
2: Uh, yes, I, I have. Or yes, I have.
0: OK, mm-hmm. so the dungeon goes on for a while.
2: Yes, it does. (laughs) It sure does.
0: (laughs) So so I totally understand the complaints about the pacing of it because there were certainly times while I was reading that book where I was like, all right, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Let's get to the next. There's a whole fucking world we could be exploring right Uh now. uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. But I I, I liked more of it than I didn't like it. Uh, But I know that some of our listeners are just like not having it. And um, But the talisman is one that's... You know really well regarded like what 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 turned you off about it do you remember
2: yeah i i did not like i don't think i liked our main character i think that is my my the reason hmm. i'm i am so i love um fairy tales so much or i'm able to i think to sort of like put up with yes the dungeon stuff is like way we are really spending a lot of time with these people uh but you know, Charlie. I I love the character of Charlie. I love him. Yeah. I think he's just so su- sweet without being sugary and fake. Uh, it he reminds me of the um he reminds me of the protagonist of Joyland. Mm. Um, and I I fell in. I love. I know Chelsea Stardust. That's one of her favorites. And, yeah. and same. I I really of New King, especially like gosh. I really love Joyland. I think it's just. I'm really appreciating his young male protagonists in his later years because they are again they're not cartoon characters so they're not like you know boy scouts necessarily who have never done a bad thing but they're just they're like these kids trying to figure it out trying to do the right thing where uh, and and I really admire that in young young male protagonists I suppose and so yeah talisman to me Um, Gosh, I think I also read it or started reading it so close to another one where I was like, oh, interesting. Now I'm getting everything jumbled. But yeah, I think I just didn't love our main character. I think that was, oh, you know what it was? I had just read Something Wicked This Way Comes.
1: Oh, no. That is um, well. my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That
2: is not the book's fault, not either book's fault. I think, and and I, I know y'all know this, but this is something that I as a fan have to remind myself with pop culture. When you go back and you read something that is a literal game changer, like um, I Am Legend or like Something Wicked This Way Comes, and then you see in all of your favorite pop culture now what an impact that right. has had. And so I think... I think I struggled with something wicked because, again, coming to it as an adult and knowing how much it has impacted so many of my favorite storytellers, I'm like, yeah, I know. I've seen this. I get it. I get it. I know. <laughs> and so, right. um, it's the John and,
1: Carter Mars problem. Yes, you it's know. exactly yeah. that. It's,
2: it's a great way to explain it. Yes. Yeah. Um, much more succinctly than I just did. But anyway, <laughs> no. I'm sure I will no, return did- – Oh, thank you. Um, I just didn't have the Wikipedia page pulled up about why I felt that way. So, like, <laughs> um, But yes, I am sure if and when the Duffers do make their adaptation of The Talisman, I will return to the book. But, you know, um, I it just didn't grab me, I think. And like, do you guys find with King's work, there's so much of it to consume that, if something doesn't grab you for me, at least I'm like, nah, I want to go find a book that does grab me, you know? Um, That's how I feel about it. Mm. Sort of.
1: Not so much for me because we like, I made it my mission starting in sixth grade that I was going to read everything that he wrote. Mm -hmm. So like, listen, I would absolutely be on the same page with you is if we decided, Hey, we like Stephen King movies, let's do a podcast on his books and started fresh. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it would be so overwhelming. But the fact is, I've been essentially been training for this job right. since Your I was in sixth life. grade. Yeah. You yeah. Know? So it's like, uh, it, it wasn't a monumental task. And even so there's a handful of King I haven't read yet. Um, there's, uh, there's a few movies that I still discover movies that I didn't know existed like Dolan's Cadillac, uh, you know, and and <sighs> all the, the, I believe it's in Leventy Billion uh, Children of the Corns. Oh my gosh,
2: boy, oh boy, the gift that keeps on giving.
1: So it's overwhelming in that aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then when you add on the fact, like if I hadn't like spent my entire teenage years, just obsessively consuming his, his output, um, you know, if I did that, I would be in the exact same spot. It's just like, especially with something like the talisman, which if you're going to be reading, it is a, it's, it's a, it's a long book, you know, talisman, the stand, like those, they're they're daunting they did they just are like even if you're looking at it as an audiobook you're looking at you know 30 hours or whatever versus a traditional you know 9 to 12 hour you know book size listen um i get it but and i also i'm also very curious because you're you're reading it for the first time as an adult where when i was a kid i was I love the talisman. Cause I, oh, I'm sure myself, you know, I was the same age as the protagonist. So I'm like, yes, it's great. It's also like real danger. Like this kid isn't like going up against people that are, like, you know, bringing, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, feather dusters to gunfights and stuff, right? They're, they're, he's being chased with the intent of being murdered by sh- werewolves and, and you know, child predators and, you know, like all this stuff. He's, he's, he's fucking religious zealots. It's like there's, uh-huh. there's, you know, there's a real sense of danger to that book that I, I really love. But I will say, having revisited it for the show, I didn't like it as much as an adult. So mm. I think maybe there's a little bit of like when you're when you're out of the, uh, you know, I don't know, the the age range or whatever, um, where it doesn't have the same impact. The same way that a lot of people and I don't understand this because I still think the movie rules. But a lot of people who were over the age of, like, say, 18, when the Goonies came out, they mm. fucking hate the Goonies. They can't stand it. And, and uh, a lot of adults visiting it for the first time. They, they don't like it and then there's something about watching that for the first time as a kid that unlocks the ability to just fully appreciate it for some reason maybe that's that's what happened with the, the talisman
2: yeah I agree with that assessment for sure
1: yeah that's interesting i haven't
0: I haven't gone back and read it in a while you know I've, I've read it two or three times so right. You know, I'm prepared for any Talisman conversations that need to happen, but i I don't think i I don't think I've read it like within the last, I don't know, fifteen years, ten years, maybe.
2: Oh wow, I don't know. Yeah.
0: So i I'd, I'd be curious to go back and see how I react to it now. Well, I'm the Dragon*, it. I have gone back and read, yeah, and i I still love it. It's yeah, I like the humor of it. I like the simplicity, the relative simplicity of it. It's very right. straightforward, you know. Um, to echo something Clark said earlier, I I really love all the little side characters in it.
1: There's
0: so much personality in the, you know, like just every, every character you encounter from like the drunken boorish guys, like in a tavern to, you know, whoever the fuck, you know, it's, it's, everyone's got a little story happening in the margins and it's, it's really interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, Yeah, and I think too, you know what else now that we've been discussing it? I think it was the one, two punch of, no, it was three things. Okay, so one, just read something wicked and was like, cool, I just read this book. You know, like, thank you, Talisman. This feels very, Stephen King, you stole all of this. All right, great. <laughs> two, I had uh, just, I, when I when the Duffer announcement was made, somehow, to your point, Eric, I got werewolves in my head and was like, oh, this is a werewolf book. Great. And then, sure enough, no werewolves for like a long time. So mm-hmm. I was like, where are my werewolves? And then, third of all, I had also kind of similarly around that same time, I don't remember if it was before or after, started Fairy Tale and this setup little boy, his mom dies young, mm-hmm. gotta go mm-hmm. on this mission, like, you know. The all it, it feels so like um, – it, it was sort of just like the worst circumstances, I think, for me to come to this entity. But now that I think I have more adjusted expectations, yeah. I could probably – it, you know sort of no okay um and in some ways i actually think probably f- finishing fairy tale and then going back to the talisman might be a good way to do it because i'm like all right you're in this to be in it you know right, and like right. let's see how he did it the first time because there are already so many similarities and i'm hopeful that having just reread eyes of the dragon um when i return to fairy tale i hope there are some fun little easter eggs in there too and little connections that i'll make
1: yeah. I mean, I'm curious to what your, your opinion is going to be, because as somebody who is mixed on fairy tale, one of the reasons I was mixed is I feel like they he was doing a lot of the same things he did in the Talisman, but I like the Talisman better. you sure, might sure. be on the opposite side of that. But um, one thing that I do want to bring up to, to circle this back to Eyes of the Dragon is you mentioned Thomas uh, as a character. And I think that that is one of my like he's kind of low key one of the best Stephen King characters that he's ever written. Yeah. Uh, I am fascinated by this by this kid because, like you said, he's not a bad kid, but he's he you know he's a, a, a hormonal twelve year old you know who doesn't have the life experience and has just these instincts. He's he's racked with guilt because he's been told his whole life or believes his whole life that he murdered his mother, you know, and you know he he's the. You know, he's the redheaded stepchild to the perfect older brother, but he also loves his older brother. You know, it's like it, it, he is a very complicated character. Um, And one of the most interesting things that I about him is that when like he he has kind of his Darth Vader redemption moment at the end. Right. Mm-hmm. But af- but he does it after he has caused irreparable harm to his public right to to the kingdom he is viewed as an evil king by the entire kingdom and there is no repairing that no, the, the kingdom wasn't there to see to see him make the right choice and save you know save his brother right so it's like <laughs> he he ends this this book by essentially banishing himself like he leaves yeah. and goes to like make amends essentially right and mm-hmm. and he it is said to like have traveled traveled across the country countryside you know uh incognito you know under a different name and all that stuff just trying to right right his wrongs and I think that's such a fascinating thing. And when we had uh, Seth Graham uh, Smith on the show mm-hmm. uh, in the early, early days, he was um, he was telling us about an Eyes of the Dragon series he almost made for, uh, I believe Hulu. it was Hulu. Yeah, it was Hulu. Um, And he developed it. And essentially what he was saying was that the first season was going to be the book. And then the second season was going to be following Thomas and, you know, as he was going across the, the countryside and essentially helping people and doing stuff. And I'm like, that is such a f- fucking cool idea. Like I would have loved to have seen him, seen him make, because it's per- that's perfect, you know? Oh so. yeah. Do you if guys I remember
0: know- correctly, I think he let us read the script for the pilot, didn't
1: he? He, I believe so. I, I believe feel so. like we,
0: I, I, I'm almost positive he did. Cause I remember thinking like, this is really fucking funny like Mm -hmm. it was it dialed up the comedy a little bit particularly in the uh i must have read it because it was in the it was in the narration you know Mm. um it really leaned into that like sort of sardonic princess bride narration that you know we keep kind of glancing at in this conversation but um really good shit i i really wish it had been made you get another fucking thing that (laughs) oh my gosh
2: yeah. I mean, I was listening to the. I was when I was re- listening to this, you know, re-listening to it, and I just was like, the, I don't want to say the name of the show, but there was a show that was made based on a property from the '80s that is fantasy based, and um, I am such a fan of of the movie. <laughs> yeah.
0: you,
2: you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, I yeah, bet. Yeah, yeah. I just. I feel like we all know how hard it is to make a thing, so I. I feel. I always feel bad criticizing anything because you know it is. Is what it is. But what I will say is what was so frustrating about that was it was clearly made by people who did not know what made the original thing special. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really frustrating to me as a fan. And I think that... So I was thinking about And I think the same thing kind of happened with Game of Thrones, like the conclusion to Game of Thrones, I think was so unsatisfying because the people who were creating it had no interest in it (laughs) anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I say that because your story about this being a series, which, I mean, it's just all right there. And talk about like a show that you could create not only that, you know, maybe some kids could watch, but like ultimately this, it's kind of that sweet spot of like the Dungeons and Dragons movie, you know, like you can, you can have a good time with it. You can invite kids to, to sort of be a part of it, but ultimately this is for the grownups and, you know, it's just such a drag to, to hear that, that this came so close and yet couldn't get off the ground because the material is I would argue exceptional, and as you say, the the side char- all the characters are so well drawn. But but Thomas is an interesting character, and I was going to ask you guys as these as the sort of Stephen King you know experts, does Thomas show up elsewhere? Because there's so much in the King universe, and I I just don't know. But like, is Thomas? Does he go on to be someone else, or or do we know?
0: No, I always I always expected him to show up in the back half of the Dark Tower. Exactly. Yeah. You know it, it it's perfectly set up for that. You know, and he he never does. No. Mm. Uh,
1: no, to, I it, it's yeah. yeah. I would love love for it to to have. I mean, King wrote you know two two Talisman books. You know, he had his Eyes of the Dragon, which has you know connections to Dark Tower. It's uh, it it seems a natural fit that we would find and pick up on some of Thomas's adventures. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I don't believe so. I Maybe mean, there the might reaction be reaction
0: to the book, you know, kept him away from sure. revisiting.
1: Could be, you know, or he feels like, it, you know, it was left off in a, a better place than than he could have, uh, you know, followed up with. You know, I think he intended you know the the fairy tale aspect of it not to have kind of eschew the whole and they lived happily ever after right thing um but it's also you know kind of part of a fairy tale thing where it's just like yep and then they this person was banished and was never you know and lived lived his life or whatever it's like Mm -hmm. there's that other other aspect of it um yeah i don't know like but i have said you know before and i i fucking uh will say this again and uh to anybody that'll listen, that. I think one of the greatest failings of the rise of Skywalker is they should have given Kylo Ren, the Thomas, uh, the Thomas, mm, mm-hmm. you know, where Ben solo redeems himself, but in the eyes of the whole galaxy, yeah, he is somebody who he is Darth Vader. He blew up, you know, an entire damn solar system. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, he, yeah. He is the face of everything that is wrong and evil and fascistic everything is wrong. And, but he's like this guy that wants to make amends. It was, it's so much more interesting if they were going to kill somebody, if they kill Ray and have, and have uh Kylo or Ben Solo be the one that has to go on as this, you know, person who is living with this mass amount of guilt, you know, and also this darkness within him and what's he going to do, you know, now, like that is the, the, the next trilogy I want to see, you know, it's like, I would, I'd want to see him, going around, you know, trying to, you know, stop the next version of him from rising, you know? Yeah. Like that, 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 that is interesting, uh, but that is not the, the direction that JJ and crew decided to go. But um, no, but I, yeah. I have
2: some, yes. I, I have some notes on Rise of Skywalker as well. If you can get the the folks at Disney and Lucasfilm on the line, I have sure, some sure. Notes <laughs> and feedback as well. Uh, yeah. But no, I,
1: I agree with Let's you. A and- special edition right now. Just Yeah. <laughs>
2: But I do agree. I think that's a great point, Eric. And I, I, I totally agree. Like that's because you know what it is. That is these, these, the, the hero's journey, right? Like that's sort of where Star Wars comes from, right? Right. Is like the, the idea and the story structure of the hero's journey. So like, yeah, that is what should have happened. I don't disagree.
1: Yeah. Well, it's also, it's so tied in with, um, you know, Japanese storytelling too. You could have the sure. You yeah. know, yeah. this disgraced, you know, uh, uh, warrior essentially going around just doing good. You know, like there, that that is, uh, I don't know, there's there's something rich and meaty about that. And I think that, that, you know, that's the reason why I love Eyes of the Dragon so much is like that just imagining what that poor fucking kid has to, to go through and, you know, what happens when people recognize him and, you know, and he has to get out of town. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like... It, There again, there's so much meat to it. There's so much fertile uh, imagination, you know, uh,
2: or does uh, flag come back? Like does flag sort of haunt him? Does flag try to sort of, you know, reappear, but only to Thomas and, and is Thomas strong enough to, you know, say no or to, I mean, yeah, I, I, well, let's, let's write a
1: sequel. (laughs) And I believe that one of the reasons why he banishes himself is he's chasing flag, correct? So I believe that's one of his stated goals is he's hunting this man who's also being hunted by Roland the gunslinger. And like, so yeah, you're right. It should, it is so natural for him to have had a crossover into the dark tower at some, at some point. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I don't believe he ever did.
0: Well, you know, I pitched this idea on the show before, but you know, one of my dreams is for King to write like a collection of just flag stories, right? Just flag jumping between different realities, fucking around with people, you know, getting into hijinks and, you know, causing empires to crumble, you know, uh, a little uh, reunion with Thomas would be perfect for a thing like that. Yeah. Yet another reason for for King to sit down and write flag, a collection <laughs> of flag stories I have always wanted.
1: And dedicate it to Scott Wampler for yeah, giving him the idea. Yeah, black
0: book, just solid black cover. That's what I want. Oh, yeah. man, I would be so fucking hyped.
2: That's a good, I like this idea a lot. I I like this idea a lot. I would listen, I would listen to that. And I hope that Bronson Pinchot would read it.
1: Oh Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. You'd have to. Because yeah. his flag is fucking off the chain, man. Like it's he- so
2: good. It it you know it also like it's it's one of those things where when you find books that come before, you're like, oh wow. So I wonder if so and so read this. But in the in the you know the flag sort of being like a serpent in some ways, and with the s's and all of that. And you know, like I was just thinking about what Voldemort looks like, looks like and his vision visage, and like I was kind of like, huh. I mean and certainly look with fairy tales and these archetypes there's no um you can't be like oh they stole that from this because it's like a fairy tale's affair in my opinion a fairy tale's a fairy tale but there it was fun being so intimately like familiar with the let's say the princess bride and then hearing little Similar things where I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's like a little reference to that. And then certainly knowing the pop culture we know now, Game of Thrones and, uh, you know, uh, Harry Potter and so on. And being like, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if this somehow crept in their minds or something. But, you know, it's who knows.
0: Could be. So um, do you think we're ever going to see an adaptation of this one? It seems inevitable, but. Like, I don't I don't know what the holdup is. Fantasy stuff seems popular. King's, you know, his name still carries a lot of weight. You know, um, the, the, the blueprint for what Seth Graham Smith wanted to do was perfect. But I'm wondering what's stopping someone else from coming in and doing this, unless the fucking same company just owns the rights and they're not doing anything with them. But I don't think King would allow that to happen. Right. That's such right. a
2: good that's such a good question and it's one that I've pondered, but I think it's because if I had to guess, what's stopping it is that fantasy is expensive. Yeah. Um, and when fantasy doesn't the Hulu version. what'd you say?
0: I said that's what stopped the Hulu version. Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. And like um, you know, I think when fantasy doesn't catch, you know, I mean we all know the story of Game of Thrones reshooting the pilot, what, two times? Right, times right. like y- y- you, you really have to, and and certainly Game of Thrones, you know, cap, I think captured um, a TV audience specifically because of the ninth episode, right? It, you know, it's great storytelling, of course, and certainly those books have a huge audience. Don't get me wrong, but I think everyone, what made that a, a water cooler show was was Ned Stark, right? And what happens? Um, so. If you don't, what is the, you know, what is the hook here, aside from just good storytelling? And to me, as a fan, that should be enough. Um, But I wonder, because to use the example I alluded to earlier, you know, I think Willow sort of failed as a TV show because there was no... It, there's no choices made, you know what I mean? Like it felt, it felt just kind of like made by committee and not, well, no, here's what made Willow special to a generation of people. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't think, watch
0: it, but like yeah. the, every everything I saw of it, like say clips or photos or just, you know, um, kind of picking up details about it from what people were saying online. Not that a lot of people online were talking about it, but um it just didn't, n- nothing about it sounded like Willow to me. Exactly. You know? I was like, I don't know why, what the fuck are they doing? Um, and, but that was the case.
2: That's how I've, I mean, I, to yeah. admit, I will I will be completely transparent. I did not finish the series. I did not get far into the series, but mm-hmm. anybody who has followed me on social media for a hundred years has known that anytime I had the opportunity to bring up Willow in an interview, it came up. <laughs> right. um, you know, asking before, you know, always asking Ron Howard about it, or always asking, you know, talking to, freaking Jessica Chastain and Chris Hemsworth for that Snow White movie. And I was like, this reminded me of Willow. Let's talk about Willow (laughs) and getting them to do that. But yeah, for me, the pilot – is like, yeah, okay, I get it. These are the legacy characters. And so Mad Mardigan had a son, where's our kid, where's Mad Mardigan, like whatever. But the magic wasn't consistent. You know what I mean? Like to me, I'm such a mythology person. I remember one of the things that kind of turned me off and, you know, Willow fans, unfortunately, like I'm not on Twitter really anymore. So you, you can find me on Instagram, I guess, and tell me I'm wrong. But the magic that Willow was claiming to be doing was just so not in the wheelhouse of what Willow or Finn Rizal or Bavmorda or any of these like magical entities of the movie were doing. It just didn't mm-hmm. make any sense. I remember, you know, um, Sorsha wakes up and she's like, Willow communicated to me in a dream. And I was like, that's not how, well, that's not Willow. What are you talking about? That's, that, <laughs> right. that's dumb. That's not from my movie. So Yeah, I think, again, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what made people really fall in love with that story and that Willow was a young man and he was our underdog and he was our fish out of water and then teaming him up with Mad Mardigan. I mean, like that's we're not doing a YA love story like that's not what Willow is. And that's what the show felt like to me before I stopped watching.
1: I'm going to say something uh, probably a, uh, a little scandalous. I don't think Eyes of the Dragon should be a, a, a miniseries or a TV show. Oh, really. I think it should it's, be a movie. I think it's perfectly it, it's a perfect two hour, you know, PG 13 little risky for the young ones, but also a family friendly Thing. i think it's it's a it has a, a perfect beginning middle and end first chapter second chapter yeah, or first act third second act third act you know i think it's it's you could you could benefit it you know if you tell it right it, you know in a, in a series format by expanding on some of the side characters the you know bringing in the texture of the world maybe seeing a little bit outside the castle walls a little bit you know more than we do in the book um you could do it, I. But I think that this is a movie. I think you you make this as a, you know, I don't know, a sixty, you know, sixty five million dollar, you know, on the lower end of the big budget, you know, higher end of the mid budget, sure. you know, thing. Uh, and you just, I think it's a, a standalone movie. Uh, there, I don't know financially if that makes any sense. You know that we hear over and over again how the mid budget movie is dead, um, uh, and. You know, I I don't know if it would succeed, but I think perfect, you know, in terms of executing the adaptation, I think that you could make a perfectly tight and enthralling feature version of this story. So, you know, who would be good for this is David Lowry.
0: Totally. He would fucking crush it.
1: A million percent. Yeah.
0: I'm going to send that motherfucker an email. You should. (laughs) Here's your new I tried to get him on the show again, like after he finished. Or after Peter Pan came out, but um, he was going to he was going to shoot something in another country. I haven't, that was months yeah, ago. I, I have no idea. That. Yeah,
1: it was. Yeah, he, he had an indie project. He was saying, yeah, yeah. I forget, and I, I, I wonder what he's
0: up to. I'm gonna drop him a line and tell him we've been uh, planning his career for him. Yes, <laughs> we've now decided. <laughs> this got is your guys. next project, buddy. Don't worry about
1: it. Eyes of Pete's Dragon. But- yeah.
0: You know, he's really good with um, child actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we He knows his way around fantasy and horror. I think he could make it scary, but also, you know, family friendly. And, you know, he's um, he's got a sense of humor. He would. Right. I, I think he'd be I think he would nail that.
1: I th- I think so, too. He, the way that he brought kind of a Terry Gilliam-esque
0: mm-hmm. angle
1: to the Green Knight, like that, yes. that's the perfect way to to uh, get into the Eyes of the Dragon world. Totally, totally. Time bandits kind of feel. Fuck yeah.
2: Yeah, Green Knight. Green Knight's a fun one I will can, may, I'm gonna tell a quick story about peace dragon <laughs> so Do it. I I went to a screening of it because I was doing the junket for mm-hmm. nerdist and uh, I was on the Disney lot and I could tell that uh, it was like okay Disney employees bring your kids and yeah. you know you're invited to this this screening so I don't know for those of you who have seen the movie uh, it opens with this child's parents dying in a <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh-huh. And the
2: opening scene, and it is told very seriously. I mean, like you know, one thing we were talking about kind of earlier about treating kids like adults, and like you know, this Pete's Dragon does not talk down to its audience, and um, and this child turns around in tears to his dad and says, "I don't want to watch this movie anymore." <laughs>
1: That's the energy we need for Eyes of the Dragon.
2: Truly, I will never forget as long as I live. Uh, this child really reacting strongly <laughs> to, the, <laughs> to the opening of
1: the
2: dragon. Um, you know, I Turns think out too, the- he
1: just wasn't a Bryce Dallas Howard fan.
2: Yeah, that's yeah, it was exactly. Really weird.
1: You had some some thoughts and opinions on nepotism, I think.
2: Yeah, sure did, sure did. No, we love <laughs> we love a Bryce Dallas Howard, but yeah, love, I think
1: well,
0: and the other ever.
2: thing about Eyes of the Dragon too, and is is simply that. The audience is savvy. They know this story, right? So in to your point, Eric, about an, a film adaptation, I think you can cover a lot of ground with a narrator the way that the book does, talking right. yeah. to the audience as though they are smart and have seen movies and watched Game of Thrones, you know, and and then hit all those dramatic beats and those comedy beats as well. So I just hmm. think it needs to be adapted either way. Movie, yeah, TV. Yeah, I want to see
0: this one live. Same yes. Here. Big, yes. big sin.
1: Well, do we have anything else we want to talk
0: about in relation to Eyes of the Dragon?
1: I think we covered all the the big points. Yeah, well, Clark, I, yes. you got anything left in the tank?
2: Um, I just no. I think we covered it. I feel really good about our conversation here. I did really giggle at um Randall Flag the or excuse me, Flag the evil magician insisting that king thomas raise everyone's taxes and it was just yeah. like, <laughs> which you know fair honestly but uh but it was just such a it was such a funny choice for this uh you know magic supervillain. and what is he what is he, it that he does he raises your taxes um <laughs> But yeah, I think the I, I think that there were a lot of themes in this book that um that was really it hit me a little bit in a different way, you know, today and um as opposed to a couple years ago when I read it. So it yeah. But that's that's it. I think we covered it. And this was really lovely and fun. And I'm so glad that we talked about it together.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely.
0: Always a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, we will uh, we will see you in September for Fantastic Fest.
2: I will see you in September.
1: Many thanks to Clark Wool for joining us. Uh, this is a really fun one for me, I, and I, I think it's because we don't get to talk about Eyes of the Dragon a lot around right. here. Yeah, for whatever reason, that's that's not the one people like. Maybe we'll focus on Talisman or Dark Tower if they're wanting to talk about King's Fantasy stuff or Fairy Tale because that's new. Mm-hmm. Well, but, also, uh, Eyes of yeah. the
0: Dragon doesn't have an adaptation. So that, that's a big one. Yeah. You know, they're like a lot of people come on. They, they're they not reading the book before they come on. They're not doing that amount of due diligence there. They're revisiting the movie, which is fine. We want our guests to do that, but there's no yeah. eyes of the dragon movie. So whoops. So yeah,
1: it does make it yeah hard. That, that, I think you put the, uh, you put the, the light right on there. I think he, that's probably why it, it seems if you've noticed a lot of the titles that we don't seem to cover hugely are the ones that uh, don't have an adaptation specifically because of that. I think totally. you crack the case. So uh, what do we got coming up? We have uh, next week's going to be a title that we both love revisiting. Like mm-hmm. any excuse to watch this movie again or read that book. Um, <laughs> Dreamcatcher is up to bat next week. Uh, and uh, we have an interesting guest. Do you want to try to uh, hint around who our guest is for the people? Uh, she
0: is a, I will say, a video essayist, also a mm-hmm. show host, an internet personality, I will say um and this one came together because i i saw her mention on twitter that she had seen dreamcatcher um uh, a number of times that was greater than 1 um mm. uh, and it was i think it was five she
1: times she didn't even have a stephen king
0: podcast to to have the excuse to watch it more than right, once right right and um i basically i had to know why anyone would watch dreamcatcher five times that didn't you know, wasn't mandated by the uh, the gimmick of their podcast to to do so. So um, I invited her onto the show and we have a we have a lovely little chat about science fiction and uh, alien horror and dream catcher and all the things that didn't go right with it. And, you know, uh, uh, about some uh, some of the stuff she does for a living. So let's uh, let's all look forward to that next week.
1: Hell yeah. And uh, this Friday on our Patreon, we will be talking about one of the more recent really excellent king books we're going to be talking about later with our friend and colleague mr eric eisenberg if you're a stephen king fan you uh, and also a reader of blogs you will know him as the kind of stephen king expert over at cinema blend Mm -hmm. Uh, i've known eric going back many 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 years ran into him on multiple junkets over the years good guy uh and i'm really excited to talk about later again that was of the recent, like, really, really, really recent King books, like, that's the only one that I sat down and I didn't stand back up again until I, I finished reading it. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah. you know, that was the one where I just tore through it kind of like, uh, like, I have stories, like, I've heard stories of my mom, like, reading King books on day one. And uh, she said she read Misery. She started reading it at night. And she looked up and realized she had finished the book and it was like early the next morning. So, uh, uh, so it's classic King, essentially. Like he's tapping yeah. into that stuff. I love Later. I think it's a really ripping read. And uh, we've only really gotten to talk about it whenever we did our, our little, uh, uh, we did like a review bonus episode of it right after it came out. And it's, it hasn't really come up again. So uh, yeah. I'm really excited to, to dig back into that book. Yes, absolutely. And what a time for people to who are
0: not signed up for the Patreon to get back on board. We recently announced that we are bringing Shelbyville back to the King Pass Patreon uh, on October 13th of this year. That's Friday the 13th. We have already dropped episode zero for season two, which uh, gives you a little peek inside uh, what uh, the heroes of Shelbyville. That would be Bug, Bruce and of course, Crystal uh, have been up to since, since we last heard from them. And, uh, this new season is more than double the length of the first season. Um, uh, mm-hmm. entirely, uh, uh oh, a thousand percent more ambitious than the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, multiple kinda, guest
1: stars. We kind of have our, our legs underneath us a little bit now, you know, we're, we're, we know the format a bit more and, uh, just when we thought that that was uh, going to like, hey, we got to grasp on things. Our uh, great uh, GM, Mr. Jacob Hall, said, oh, yeah, you want you think you got to grasp on things here. We're going to take you through about a billion different genres and, uh, and crazy events. And uh, every time you think you haven't figured out something new, twists your expectations. It's uh, we're having a ball doing this. new season. It's it's kind of spooky. I thought there were we, we
0: recorded about four more hours of this last night. And um, mm-hmm. I, I continue to be amazed that I've been playing this character for so long that and I've been inside his head as a result for so long that now playing the game, uh, like you feel the emotions of the character, you know, <laughs> it's it's really wild. Um, it, That's sad. like if I hadn't ever done something like this and I heard someone saying that, I'd be like, fucking whatever, dude, you know, but um, <laughs> we have really. uh we have really taken hold of our characters are doing interesting things with them this season. You're getting arcs for each of the characters and mm-hmm. uh all kinds of creatures monsters slashers uh all manner of shenanigans and uh I would also say it's uh it's a lot dirtier than than season one <laughs> was. uh so heads up if, uh, to anyone that might have a problem with that but Shelbyville is coming back, and you're gonna want to have access to it. So, uh, go ahead and get signed up at patreoncom thekingcast You'll get access to well, all of season one of Shelbyville plus the season finale, which is not uh, available publicly. Not to mention dozens and dozens and dozens of other episodes, interviews, commentaries, curveball interviews, all manner of all manner of hijinks going on over there. So, you know, uh, get signed up or else.
1: Yeah. Or else indeed. All right. Well, we'll see everybody on the Patreon this Friday for another discussion of later and with Mr. Eric Eisenberg. And then we will be back on the main feed next week with our good friend Duddits uh, to, I don't know, bask in the glory that is Dreamcatcher. Is that, that too hyperbolic? Yeah, hyper-molic? something like that.
0: Whatever. Yeah, something like
1: that. Yeah. I'm
0: not putting more thought into this than they put in <laughs> the
1: Awesome. Well, we'll see y'all next week for Dreamcatcher for sure. Bye. Bye, right, folks. The Kingcast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wompler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.